no public demon, <laughs> public witch, witchcraft or, yeah. This is, um, Jesus was cruising the earth today and did what he did this morning, or what he did then this morning. Jesus would be probably in big trouble. Number 597 is animal cruelty, except that's provided in subdivision C of this section. And every person who maliciously, or I know you guys, it's probably hard to read, and intentionally maims, mutilates, tortures, or wounds a living animal, or maliciously and intentionally kills an animal is guilty of a crime punishable pursuant to subdivision D. Um, subdivision D there is a fine of not more than $20,000. I think a year uh, in prison. Is that what that says? Misdemeanor, county jail, not more than one year, uh, $20,000. So animal cruelty, number 597. And then the destruction of property, number 594. Every person who maliciously commits any of the following acts with respect to any real, um, to any real or personal property, um, not his or her own, in cases other than those specified, or specified by state law, is guilty of vandalism, right? And then it talks about graffiti, damages, or destroys. So anybody remember what Jesus does here? Mark chapter 5. Mm, he does, but not in this passage. So we're a little, little too early on that one. Ooh, Robin's on it. Sends the demons into the pigs. He maims animals, or he actually kills animals, and he destroys personal property. Right. So this is what Jesus would be guilty of now. Because this was actually for Chris, but Chris isn't here this morning. We've talked a little bit about the Tour de France, but I think we are right in the middle of the Tour de France this year. Now, this young man is actually not riding in the Tour de France because he got in some big trouble earlier this year. Um, his name is Antonio Tiberi, and he's from Italy. He's 21 years old, so a young uh, cyclist. He's incredibly talented as a cyclist. Um, Antonio got an air rifle, and he was sighting an airsoft gun, air rifle, and he was, I guess, doing some target practice when he saw a cat walking by. Um, so he shot the cat um, and killed the cat. Now, I don't know if he, what he was thinking again. So he kills the cat. The, they find, the, the team, I think, finds him about $4,500. They suspended him then for th uh, first 20 days they suspended him. And then after that, they suspended him for three months without pay. So he's suspended. So he basically loses about a quarter of his salary. Um, and then after that three months, they ended up firing him from the team. So he and Trek Segafredo is one of the biggest kind of teams, cycling teams in the world. Um, so he um, gets fired. And he has recently been picked up by another team. But that being said, um, again, these are just, I just, I mean, I, I think part of it I just wanted to work in a little cycling reference. But this was kind of big news. This <laughs> happened back in February. And he was, again, suspended for three months. So that was May. He just signed to a new team, I think, in, in some point in June. But um, that was his penalty, again, for animal cruelty. Uh, so again, Jesus does something like this where he sends a demon into 
10,000 pigs, the Bible tells us. And Jesus would probably receive a fine of a little bit more than $4,500. So let's read this passage. Mark chapter 5, verses 1 through 20. Uh, We're going to be on page 702. And as we normally do, I'll start it off and someone else jump in. Morning, Isan. Um, and just Isan, we're just getting started on Mark chapter 5, verses 1 through 20. This is the passage where G, uh, Jesus drives out the demon into the herd of pigs and sends them down the steep bank. So, verse 1. They, Jesus and his disciples, went across the lake to the region of the Gerasenes. When Jesus got out of the boat, a man with an evil spirit came from the tombs to meet him. This man lived in the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been chained hand and foot, but he tore the chains apart and broke the irons on his feet. Um, No one was strong enough to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and in the hills, he would cry out and cut himself with stones. Excellent. Um, I want to do two main movements this morning. I don't, I, this is a sermon where I feel like I'm going to run out of time at some point, and I'm just going to kind of probably cut it off early, and we'll probably catch up with it later. Um, but I want to talk about two main things this morning, and the two kind of movements that I, I see on this is, um, again, I just want to talk about demons Uh, just because how much time Jesus talks about this. And then in this passage, you're going to have three people begging Jesus, okay? 
You're going to have three people begging Jesus. You're going to see the demons are going to be one of the people who are begging Jesus. Does anybody see who else is begging Jesus? People. The people are begging Jesus. And then who else? Yeah, the, the man, the, the kind of healed man um, is begging Jesus. So we're going to spend some time talking about demons, but then we'll also spend some time. And again, I don't know how far I'm going to get into this kind of second half of the sermon. Um, and one of the things I wanted to do before we even got into the demon talk is I want to connect this back to what was already been we've talked about over the past couple weeks. So two things I think are important to think about is Jesus... Um, when did my dad and I preach? I get these weeks all mixed up. Was that two weeks ago? Yeah. Two weeks ago? Yes. Um, when my dad and I preached on, huh? Three weeks ago? See, that's what I'm saying. I get all confused myself now. You're confusing me some more. Sorry. Two weeks ago. So it was July 2nd. Yeah. Yep. When my dad and I were talking, we were talking about the parables. Um, and the parable of the mustard seed that goes into the ground, right? The smallest of all seeds. Yep, when planted, it grows and becomes the largest of all garden plants that the birds of the air can perch in its shade. And that kind of comment that Jesus talked about, the birds of the air perching in its shade, right, is a prophetic reference, right? It was a, it was a prophetic kind of callback to what the prophets would, would talk about. And that, that symbolism was that, like, the nation of Israel was going to be this tree, right? And the birds would be the different nations that were actually going to find rest and shelter and protection within the nation of Israel, right? Jesus is talking about the kingdom of God being this tree, right? And the different nations are going to find rest and protection and healing and safety within this tree, right? And as he tells that parable in Mark 4, he then moves into the Decapolis. Again, the Decapolis is the region across the the lake on the other side of the Jordan. The 10 um, tribes that were exiled when the Jews conquered, um, when the Jews conquered during the the conquest with Joshua, right? And it's kind of this pagan um, Gentile land. So he goes in there and actually, you're kind of seeing Jesus in some senses as you're seeing these Decapolis nations come to Jesus, right? Um, you're seeing the birds of the air already starting to perch in its shade, right? So there is just like this immediate connection to what Jesus is, is his parable in Mark 4 to what he's actually then just doing in Mark 5. The second connection that needs to be made too, and Elise pointed this out in her sermon, that would have been three weeks ago when she did her sermon, um, the sea, right, the sea as the disciples were in the boat and, the, and there's the storm and the waves are crashing over and they're panicked because the sea was known in, in the Jewish mindset, it was known as the abyss, right? The place of, you know, you, you would never want to go swimming in there. It was not like leisurely to kind of go hang out. It was definitely the place where, you all good? Yeah, um, it was it was it was it was known as as a place of chaos and and almost you know demon possession. And when Jesus sends the pigs, right, sends the demon possessed pigs into the sea, it would have like it would have been almost reinforcing that kind of idea. That's of course where you would send the demons. That's where they belonged. That's where they would they would want to be was would be in that kind of sea. So you have this kind of the chaos of the sea that would tie into Jesus calming the storm, right? 
And then you would also have this kind of tie-in with the parable of the mustard seed. So those sorts of things are, are just kind of throwbacks, and, and it's just kind of connecting the story of Mark as he's telling this, this narrative. But the thing that I wanted to start with here was I wanted to talk about demons again. And I know we've spent a little bit of time on this, but man, if, you, if we really kind of take some time and understand how important or what kind of a theme this has been in the beginning of Mark, it's, it's just like almost every single chapter, right? So you have the first miracle that Jesus does. Remember the demon-possessed man in the synagogue, right? And then at the end of, um, so he does the, the demon-possessed man in the synagogue. He goes to Peter's mother-in-law's house and he um, heals her. And then at night after sunset, he does some healings. And the Bible also says that he drives out many demons, but he won't let them speak, right? Um, then he goes after... Um, he does that. He gets up early in the morning and he goes away to pray. And then Peter goes to find him. And Jesus says, I'm, I need to go travel. Jesus says that Jesus travels throughout the region. He's preaching in the synagogues and driving out demons, right? Um, in chapter 3, 11, when the demons uh, see him, they fall down before him. Uh, in three fifteen, he's giving the disciples authority to drive out demons. And then here in chapter five, he is healing this man possessed by the legion of demons, right? So again, like, I don't know if there's anything more prevalent or more talked about in the first couple chapters of Mark than all these references to demons. Now, we sit here in the 21st century and we're like, oh yeah, well, that was kind of back then. Of course, that's what they thought. It was superstitious and all those sorts of things. But I want us to think about that again, um, and just kind of, I would say further, this, is, this has been so helpful for me. I've never really thought about demons before because again, hey, we live in the 21st century. We don't have to think about that stuff. Yeah, that was back then, those sorts of things. But I'm going to throw back one quote and then I want to bring something new. Um, this was Gombus and we talked about this uh, a couple months ago, I believe. Remember when he said this? And he, one of the things that Gombus does with this quote is he talks about demons as something almost very mundane, ordinary, kind of familiar. When we think about demons, right, we think about it um, like it's something exotic. It, it doesn't happen here in developed Western civilizations. It's like in the jungles of Africa or demon possession happens. Um, you know, it's spectacular. It's like this Hollywoodized, you know, person losing control. And we kind of think... And then what Gamba says, he says, again, he, he makes demon possession, this was really helpful for me to think about, he makes demon possession very kind of mundane, right? Very kind of ordinary, very kind of um, just kind of part of almost everyday life. Uh, let, me, let me, I'll clarify that in a second after I read the quote. Because he says it's easy to think that anger and resentment, right? He just mentions those two. And then I, I par paraphrased in here. Think about lust. Think about consumerism. Think about fear. Think about busyness. Think about control. Think about all those sorts of things, right? He says it's easy to think that all those sorts of things are so common that demonic involvement seems outlandish, right? You would never make that kind of natural connection. And then he says, yet consider how irrationally we behave when we cultivate resentment, right? Or, or when you're consumed by anger or when you've, built a life based on lust, 
or you are, you have to control everything in your environment, right? He says, we can hardly think straight and our desires for revenge or consuming or, or our fear becomes so overpowering. And he says, we, we ask these questions, what's gotten into him? Something has come over her. We become violent and abusive and, dev- and the de- uh, devastating, long-lasting and far-reaching effects of unchecked anger and jealousy, anger, lust, resentment, consumerism are awful. They're just evil, right? Now, I would say this, just because you're angry doesn't mean you have a demon, right? I'm, we're not saying this. We are talking about what happens when you cultivate these things time, day after day, week after week, year after year, and you see the kind of evil that can grow in a person. And, it, and Gamba says, it's demonic, right? It's demonic. Um, and so for me to think about demon possession, right, or think about the way that demons work as, you know, kind of mundane, um, uh, common, right, in some senses. It's not exotic. It's not spectacular. It's not the, sh- what's the, what's the demon movie? Um, Exorcist. The Exorcist. The other one, too, with Morgan Freeman and uh, John Goodman. Um, yeah, somebody's going to have to Google that one. Do, do you guys know, remember that one? Morgan Freeman, John Goodman. Um, remember it, but I can't. Huh? Oh, the Brad Pitt, Morgan Freeman was seven. Yeah. Um, so it's not like this Hollywood thing. It's just people, again, demon possession really kind of normal. N- not normal, but just cultivated year, 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 year. It, it changes people. What's gotten into that person? Um, the ancient opinion of demon possession, I, I found this helpful by a theologian, G.B. Card. He says, ascribed to demon possession any disease which involved loss of control. Right? I want to talk about control here in a second. Epilepsy, delirium, convulsions, nervous disorders, mental derangement, suggested the power of some sort of an invading presence. Um, <clears throat> now, one kind of new, one other new thing that I thought was um, in, in reading, because all the commentaries as I'm reading through and I'm doing my study, doing the homework on this passage, all the commentaries, you have to talk about the demon possession going on in this, in this story, right? It's the big, the legion of demons, he's throwing them into the pigs, all those sorts of things. It's, it is kind of, this one is kind of Hollywoodized in some senses, right? Um, David Garland, in his commentary, he says, how do we talk about it today? Like, how do we talk about demons, demon possession? How can we have those conversations? In the church, we probably have a comfort or a familiarity to talk about it, right? Because we understand, yes, th- that God is, is a, in some senses, a supernatural power, right? But we believe that there's supernatural power, God. We believe that there is a counterbalance to that, the devil. We believe in angels. We believe in demons. So we can kind of have a general conversation. But then how do you take that conversation out into the world, right? Garland says it like this. I thought this was just so helpful. He says, how does one communicate with those many others who dismiss the idea that supernatural evil beings can take control of a person's life as a relic of ancient superstition, right? A lot of people, again, I even fall into this trap, right? Demon possessions, like those sorts of things. Eh, That happens in Africa and it happens 10,000 years ago or thousands of years ago, right? We think like this, right? Such persons, I myself sometimes, would probably feel more comfortable, this is so great, with a polysyllabic medical term to describe this man's condition 
and psychiatrists might propose several selected or several possible psychoses, right? So people out there, they don't want to talk about it, but then they say, hey, well, we have this like long-winded medical condition with many syllables, or, you know, psychiatrists will say, oh, it's this psychosis. Others might blame the man's condition on a chemical imbalance, a history of being abused as a child, or some genetic pros uh, propensity to violence, right? All very natural, probably very common explanations that we talk about, right? Because people don't want to talk about demon possession. They don't want to talk about supernatural evil beings taking control of a person's life, right? So we have these. So he then says this. He says, by giving this condition a scientific names, perhaps we believe that we can understand it. And here's what was so fascinating to me, and have some control over it, right? How much as human beings do we search for control? Such diagnoses might make the account more attractive to those who are unsympathetic to supernatural phenomenon, but they do not solve the problem. And then this last quote, he says, we may change the names of the demons, but they are not thereby conquered and they do not lose their malice. And he quotes another theologian, as Leanhart perceptively observes, we have renamed the demons of the past, but we have not exercised them, right? So, again, what, what Garland's saying in this, in this kind of long-winded quote is, when you have conversations out in the world, people are like, oh yeah, well, it's this condition, or he was abused, or it's that, or this psychosis, or all these sorts of things. And he's like, okay, you've renamed them, but you haven't solved what's going on inside man's heart. Right? You haven't solved the evil that's kind of underneath. Right? So, <clears throat> one other thing on demon possession. So, um, is, is this. Uh, uh, we're going to take, take an Elliot, Elliot Stone swing at history here. Um, because in the pre-modern era, you would have people, again, very comfortable talking about superstition. Demons, gods, religions, that's how we would understand the world. If it didn't rain, whose fault was it? The gods, right? Or, or you know, you would pray or you would do, you know, it's, or if, it, if you needed something, you would go. Um, but then in the modern era, we come to the modern era around the 1700s, right? And we kind of get rid of all that. Superstition, demons, gods, religion, all those sorts of things. The modern era is all about knowledge, right? And knowledge leads to progress, right? We are going to be able to figure out the world in such a way that we will completely wipe out religion because we know, right? And then you get to world, so this happens, the pre-modern era, is about, um, the modern era starts in about the 1700s. World War II kind of comes and ends the, what we understand classically, historically as the modern era because all of our knowledge, all of our insight, all of our wisdom lead to atomic bombs, Lead to, um, lead to the Holocaust, lead to the biggest war the world has ever seen, right? So all of our knowledge kind of ends that. We enter into something called the postmodern era, which relativizes all knowledge, right? Which is, well, you know, it's, you might believe this thing and that person might believe the other thing and we have this thing that people believe. And then what happens in 9-11, which a lot of people look to 9-11 as kind of the end of this postmodern era, um, because we watch people fly airplanes into buildings filled with, you know, civilians um, and watch thousands of people die. And we were watching this on live television, right? It's streamed around the world. And everybody is in shock. And everybody at some level says, what's going on there is evil, right? 
And they almost, you kind of almost go back to saying, I don't know what that is. We don't have, we don't have any sort of medical term, diagnoses, anything for that. It's evil, right? And it kind of ends that, well, you know, what's good for you guys is okay for you, that relative, relativized knowledge. And we, we actually live in this post, postmodern era, which is still really kind of unfolding. Um, I don't know which way to, to think about that at the moment. William Faulkner calls evil the sickness at the heart of things, right? The sickness at the heart of things. So that was a long time to talk about demons. Am I still with you guys? Um, <clears throat> let, me, let me think of if there's anything else I want to say one other thing. I just want to show this kind of summary slide, right? I think this has been, again, I, I have not, as a pastor, almost 20 years, I've not spent a lot of time studying, I thinking. Saw, I, I saw demons. D-E-M-M. O N S. Yeah, and you're not allowed to watch those scary movies with demons in it, Johnny, okay? I just about. Yeah, yeah, church is about God and Jesus conquering the demons and driving the demons out. Yeah, that's right. I think you're fixed on the wrong. <laughs> oh, John. Johnny, I know, I've spent a lot of time talking about demons this morning, and so you're probably a little distracted. <laughs> Johnny, we're talking about demons this morning. Come on, Johnny, give me something. Come on, Johnny, sing us a little something. <laughs> All right, that was, our <laughs> that was our intermission break there. <laughs> So again, just thinking about this, I've never thought or invested a lot of time in this, and I, it's been really helpful for me to get a firm grasp on this, especially in light of how often it comes up in the Gospel of Mark. Gombus would say that it's, it's kind of mundane, it's ordinary, it's familiar, it's, it can be very common, right? It's not this exotic, spectacular, Hollywoodized kind of concept of like, you know, some person screaming and running around. Um, Garland, I, to summarize him, yeah, we have some knowledge, right? But we don't have that control, right? We have not solved the problem of evil. Like, you might think that we've renamed everything, but it's still, there's something at the heart that's, that's evil. Um, <clears throat> okay, one other thing I want to say on this. This is the last thing I'll say on this. Um, you guys all know that, and my dad was here two weeks ago, you guys know that my dad started off as a pastor at Teen Challenge, right? A drug and alcohol rehab center. And so I lived at Teen Challenge from when I was born until I was five years old. We actually had like a house, almost like a parsonage at this place. We did move from that when I was about five. But my dad was the pastor there from, um, say, when I was born until about nine or ten years old. So very familiar with, with, um, with Teen Challenge, with drug addiction, um, with alcohol addiction, with all those sorts of addictive things. And... <clears throat> Uh, I, I mean, I, again, just watching what that does to people, right? It's, I, I don't know how to say it other than it's just, it's just demonic. Like, you could never say, like, hey, we should, you know, we should ban drugs. We should outlaw drugs because they're demonic. Like, you can't stand up in a court in, or in, in any sort of legislative body and argue that. Um, but I would say this, and this is what did maybe just a little bit of social commentary. We've seen a lot of places, and in our state and in other states, like the legalization of drugs, and I think that that's demonic, right? 
And we've seen not only in our country, but I know like in different places around the world, they're called like um, they're called like safe safe uh, safe shoot up houses or, or safe houses to do drugs, right? I think that that's demonic. And again, could I ever stand up and argue that in front of a city hall or in front of some sort of legislative body that drugs are demonic? I'd be laughed out of the building. I understand that. But there is something that is demonic underneath that. And as a Christian, I feel really comfortable saying that. Um, it would be very hard to say that in other places. But, but I don't know if, if you can ever look at what that does to people and say it's anything but demonic, right? You can name it whatever you want, but underneath that, right, as Faulkner says, there is a sickness at the heart of things. And when you see legalization of drugs, when you see legalization uh, or these safe shoot-up houses where people were just encouraging people, well, hey, we'll, we'll allow you to stay high for the rest of your life. Um, I, to me, it's just, and I understand the, the kind of counter-argument to these safe shoot-up houses. It's, you know, helping people, it's saving lives. Yeah, uh, yeah. but anyway, that's, that's all I get to say on demons. Do we just need to stop there? Are you guys going for... Yeah, have fun. You guys are missing a real wingding in here. <laughs> um, just keep going for a little bit. Yeah. Like I said, I'm not going to get through all this, um, but uh, but I want to talk about this for a little bit, and maybe we'll come back to it in a couple weeks. Three people who beg Jesus. Demons beg Jesus. Um, the people are going to beg Jesus to leave their area, and then the healed man is going to beg Jesus to go with him to be his disciple. Uh, I, I was challenged with this thought, and I just, you know, I think this is going to be one of the discussion questions. What have you been begging Jesus for, right? And I, I kind of was asking myself that. And sometimes that's verbally, like through prayers, right? We kind of have some prayer times. Sometimes it's really our actions, right? Like we are actually begging Jesus um, in the way that we act. Because I believe that we all are. We got everybody sitting in this room is at some level begging Jesus for something. And again, it might not be this verbal, I'm on my hands and knees. You know, it could be. But we all are desperate for Jesus to give us something because we realize that, again, there is a sickness at the heart of things, right? And we're all kind of in that realm of saying, Jesus, please. We're pleading with you, right? So we'll come back to that question during discussion time, but uh, that's been a little bit of a of just a question that's yeah like I said been been ringing around in my heart in my mind. I don't have other than just looking at this story and the people who beg Jesus and the different responses that Jesus gives them. I'm not going to come here and say like, oh, Jesus will just answer your prayer as soon as you beg hard enough. Um, I don't know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so the demons are going to beg Jesus, and they're going to beg Jesus uh, three things. So within this three things, the first one has three things. Demons beg Jesus not to torture or to torment them, right? The demons are going to ask Jesus um, not to leave the region, not to send them out of the region. And then they're going to ask Jesus, they're going to beg Jesus to send them into the pigs. So I think let's just try and finish this just number one. So we'll just do the three and number one. Uh, and then we'll, we'll go there from, from there. So 
Number one, Robin, I am begging you not to leave this region right now. <laughs> okay. So the demons, where is that? What verse is that? Let's read that verse together. Seven. Oh, let's start at six. When, when he saw Jesus from a distance, he ran and fell on his knees in front of him. He shouted at the top of his voice, What do you want with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? In God's name, don't torture me. Don't torment me. Right? Does anybody have it something different in their Bible? Torture, torment. I, I'm thinking about this in this way, right? Um... This kind of concept that Jesus is a hazard to our health, right? Jesus is a hazard to our health, spiritual health, emotional health, physical health, um, relational health, whatever. This was a question I would, I would ask junior high students. I ask adults as well, too. I think this is a really, really kind of foundational question. Is following Jesus really the best way or is God holding out on you? Is he holding out on me, right? Um, that in some senses, Christian life, torture is too strong of a word, right? In some senses, Christian life, it, it could be boring. There's a bunch of rules. You're really missing out on all the fun stuff. We kind of generally suck it up now. Hey, you got to sit through like 30, 40 minutes of Eric's boring sermons every week. We got to do like these different things. We can't, we can't smoke. We can't chew. We can't go with girls that do, you know, like all those sorts of rules and all the, you know, so we kind of like, it's, it's missing out on the fun stuff and we suck it up now, right? It's a little bit of torture to kind of go through this, but Hey, heaven in the end, we're going to get heaven. We'll be the last, we'll get the last laugh. Right. And I, I see this and I've seen this, right. That what happens is is a, I would say it's a kind of demon, honestly, that Christians live with, right? We have this numb and unsatisfying life with a vague hope of an afterlife. That's it, right? And we, we get this, we get here a, a great phrase, we get life after death, but we get no life before death, right? Because Jesus is really holding out on you Right? He's not really the best way to live life, but hey, you're going to get heaven in the end, so just kind of suck it up now. Right? He's not the best way. He's just kind of holding out on you. Um, Dallas Willard, one of the kind of quotes, I'm sure we all have a couple quotes that just kind of stay with us. Dallas Willard says this. I probably should have put this up there, but I can just... He says, failure to live a satisfying life will always have the unintended effect of making sin appear attractive. Let me say that one more time. Failure to live a satisfying life will always have the unintended effect of making sin appear attractive. How do we find a satisfying life? It's by looking at Jesus, right? Failure to live a satisfying life as we see in Jesus, as we experience in Jesus, will always have the unintended effect of making sin appear attractive. Christians live with the demon that life is boring, that God's holding out on you, that he's just trying to torture you, to suck it up. It's not that good, 
right? And we live with this kind of idea that really the best life is found somewhere else and we'll somehow get an afterlife that will be worth it in the end. Yes, that's true, but just as much as there is life after death, there is life before death as found in Jesus, right? Um, yeah. Any questions on thoughts on that one? The demons then beg Jesus. They say, "Don't make us leave our region, right? Don't send us out of our comfort zone, right? We have this kind of region that we live in, this kind of comfort zone." Um, I would say this too, and, and I don't know if this is stretching it a little bit too much. I think another demon in our midst, and especially in the world, is comfort and convenience, right? Comfort and convenience, right? Staying in our region, staying in our comfort zone. Um, culturally, right? Culturally, this is the drug. This is what's sold. This is the religion. The religion of the world that we live in is comfort and convenience. And this influences our spirituality. This influences Christianity. This influences the way that we have begun to do church. Because you live kind of 24, uh, how many hours in a week? 24 times 7. One sixty-eight, math teacher. We'll go with it. One sixty-eight. You live one hundred sixty-six hours a week with this message of comfort and convenience, right? Think about all the ways that we're preaching that. Amazon, right? Get whatever you want whenever you want. Uh, Uber Eats, have food delivered to you. Um, uh, On-demand everything. Watch. Do you remember us? Our poor childhood. We we had like three VCR tapes, and you. That's all you got to watch. If you were sick. You had two VCR tapes that you got to watch, and you didn't get to watch on. My kids get to watch on demand everything, right? We have on demand everything. We have devices that bring everything we want exactly right to us. We just, this is the drug. This is the religion that we live in comfort and convenience. This influences our Christianity. And 166 hours of the week, that's what you're preached. You see it in TV advertisements, you see it on your phone, you see it um, on billboards, you see it everywhere. And this affects the way that we do church, right? Because we'll come in, we'll drop, you know, a 20 in the offering box. Hey, I can help with that 4th of July decoration. It's, you know, it's, it's not that inconvenient to me. But as soon as Jesus, we don't allow Jesus to demand or ask too much of us because we live our whole life not being demanded or asked of, except occasionally at our job. And then if it's too much, we quit, right? Um, and this is, I think, this is the sharp end of the gospel that Jesus really talks about. I, when I was traveling, how much we got more? This is it. When I was traveling, I listened to a book on preaching by Tim Keller, just kind of in my ears as I was traveling around. And I realized this place of error for me. So I'm going to get aggressive on you guys in a second. <laughs> Tim Keller talks about, um, he talks about kind of two different preaching styles, right? And one could be me and one could be my dad. Those are the two different kind of preaching styles. And he, he said, you know, often you have preachers that are probably too gentle, right? They can be too gentle. And then often you can have preachers who are too what? Demanding, too harsh, right? And I, I for sure, I'm like, man, I think that my preaching, my leadership, I get this a lot. It's just kind of personality too. I get this from my mom. This is my mom's side. But very gentle, kind of non-confrontational. 
Um, and then when my dad comes in, it's really good for my dad to come into this church, even though he does say some things that are incredibly inappropriate at points. Um, it's good because he, yeah, <laughs> I know, it's because <laughs> um, he has a disposition about him. And he's like kind of at that age too where he just doesn't care anymore. So there's kind of like those, he has that disposition in him where he's able to challenge us in a lovingly confrontational way, right? And we need that. This is the sharp, pointy edge of Jesus' message that oftentimes we need to be confronted with. We spend our whole lives, I spend even a lot of my time as a preacher, probably, I don't want to say to the demise of this church, I think that that's too far, but, you know, we spend a lot of time kind of sanding off the edges of it, you know, or, or just kind of um, contextualizing it. Um, but Jesus says radical things to us about taking up our cross, about becoming the servant of all, about how when we lust, it's the equivalent of adultery, about how when we're angry with people, it's the equivalent of murder, right? And we just, like for me, and again, this is probably an error in my leadership style, my teaching style, hey, let's just talk about it. Let's just discuss it. We'll contextualize it. We'll rationalize it. We'll, we'll sand off all those sharp edges and we'll make it nice and smooth and palatable. But there is, again, the demons who beg Jesus. We live in a time where the religion, where the God, where what's sold is comfort and convenience. And I guess, you know, I guess I want to get back to um, this kind of idea of like, man, the gospel, Jesus' message has some sharp, pointy edges to it that are really hard for us to um, digest, but we got to do it. All right? I think I got to stop there. I think that's enough. I'm going to stop there. What do you think, Johnny? Should I keep going? (laughs) You want me to talk some more about demons, don't you? Um, Is that good for this morning? Is that a good place to stop? We'll talk about the pigs. We'll talk about the people. We'll talk about, uh, what else we got to talk about? The pigs, the people, and the man who begs to go with Jesus. A couple questions. Uh... Praise, pushback, and problems. How comfortable you feel talking about or theologizing, look at that, about demons, right? Again, it's not something we really talk about. It's something that my understanding's really been growing in. I've been learning, developing. Um, if you feel comfortable, share what you um, have been begging Jesus for. And I didn't get to that last demon where he, the, the demons beg Jesus to send him into the pigs and that kind of whole point. So, what demon, um, and I put torture or comfort, right, where, you know, those, those two first questions Jesus is holding out on us, life is kind of torture with him, or boring, or, or rules, or whatever, um, or that kind of demon of comfort, don't make me leave my region, I'm comfortable here, I have my thing going on here. Which one of those did you uh, connect with most? Um, and what about this story uh, kind of caught your ear? Is that a good place to just kind of do a little bit of discussion? Yeah. Uh, And if you need to get up and and go gather around some other folks, do that, and uh, we'll take a couple minutes. Did that man have a name? I mean, the demons have a name. The demons identify themselves.